Hello and welcome to How Did You Do It? On today's episode, we speak to Josh, who is a transformational breathwork coach. I decided to split this episode into two parts as Josh's depth, vulnerability, and knowledge is so pivotal into understanding the true power of breathwork. In part one, we learn about Josh's substance abuse, his drug addiction, and ultimately what led him to transform his life. Next week, in part two, we will learn all about breathwork, what's involved, what to expect, and other tips and tricks that you can take with you along your healing journey. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and as always, I am so looking forward to hearing your feedback. Josh! Gabby. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. What a pleasure. <laughs> I'm so excited. We met how long ago now? <laughs> um, we probably met like within three months ago. Yeah, but properly? But we actually properly met. I was actually telling the story this morning. Thank you. And I had to think about it. It was it was at um, Elisa's birthday mm. and we got chatting. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I obviously started blurbing everything about <laughs> I loved how vulnerable you were. We had a great chat. We did have a great chat. Let's expand on it. Let's expand on it. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny when I've, I've always considered myself an open book, mm. you know, particularly with my background. I'm pretty unafraid of levels of judgment that may come from people. So, I, you know, when I meet someone that I vibe with, I'm usually sharing a significant amount of Probably too much. No, sometimes, but um, you know, it was very, it was very like it was good to to chat about it and sort of, um, I guess, learn about what you're doing as well. Mm. And then you were like, "Let's go on, come on my podcast." And you were like, "Yes, yes." And, and then, I was so excited. <clears throat> who were you, mindset wise, habit wise, and who are you now? Mm. So I guess um, growing up. And throughout my teenage and, and younger adult years, there was a common theme that there was a, a real lack of self-trust, self-esteem, self-love. And so when it came to having good habits, no, they didn't exist. I was a slave to dopamine. I was a mm. slave to like whatever would make me feel better or feel good. And it was like easily accessible. So for a decade, you know, I ate pizza, chips, burgers, ice cream, sweets, like all the time was my diet. Um, alcohol, obviously, cigarettes um, and, and, you know, obviously extensive different types of drugs. And I was very promiscuous as well. I definitely didn't really care who I shared my energy with. Um, I would call myself very ego-driven. Um, and essentially like when I look at it, I guess there was a lot of external validation that I required, um, to feel something about myself. I never actually had that belief in myself and that good feeling that I was like, I'm whole, I just as I am. So I was always chasing something that was never inside me or that I didn't think mm. was inside me, which I think is probably the more important component. So I guess that's like on a really surface level, but to understand what kind of behaviors I was engaging in and who I am now is interesting because 
there is still a lot of that within me. I know it's there. And, you know, like for particularly this week when I went and did my ice bath this morning, the reason why I wanted to go and do an ice bath and do some um, intense breath work beforehand was because all of this week I have not been earning my dopamine. Mm. I have been accessing it through chocolate and, you know, like TV and just kind of like really quick hits. Mm. And I know that it's not sustainable. You know, I'm constantly, I find myself craving the next part. Yesterday I was like, what is going on? Like something's missing. You know, I almost started to crave cigarettes again, you know, and I was like, something needs to hit, mm. you know. And it's kind of like when you're when you're getting this really quick dopamine, it does not last and it leaves you wanting more. It becomes like a drug. So um, as much as now I'm very focused on earning my dopamine and doing harder things to actually have that satisfaction because now I've got a lot of self-love, self-esteem, self-trust and self-belief. I still obviously have days where I'm like fall out of that pattern. So I guess there's a vast difference in who I am now in terms of how I view myself. And it's funny because I actually had this conversation last night that I took a selfie in the mirror and I realized that I'm really like I have to force myself to smile in selfies and I'm typically taking a lot of selfies and I always have that I'm not really smiling that much in. And I kind of had this this momentary um, epiphany that even though I've done so much in my life and I've really turned my life around, there is a part of me that still – that kind of looks at me a little bit different now because of some things that I've done. And there's still a bit of like remorse, regret, a bit of shame that I'm working through. But it's like I've only really just like probably identified it, you know, in the last like 24 hours. So <laughs> like Literally right now. Literally right now. So like okay. I guess the person who I am now is still evolving. Mm. But for me the basis of – having the self-love, the self-trust, the self-esteem, the self-belief are like the four pillars that one needs to then be able to want to do things and to have change because very easily if I didn't have those things, I would have had a you know an easy access dopamine day and then before you know it, it's been another year that I've been doing that because I don't have the awareness to want to bring myself back to a healthy place. So I guess there's a really big difference is like as humans, you're going to have these moments where you sleep and where you do things that are not in line with what you're currently doing or, or how you're currently trying to live your life. And that's okay. But it's how you bring yourself back out of that that really shows who you are. So obviously that's kind of now where I'm embracing my polarity. And I, I understand that I believe I'm here for a mission. I believe I'm here to help people, to um, – heal themselves however there is also a part of me that's like i'm here also to live my life mm. and to enjoy things and sometimes those things are maybe not going to be good for me it's about the moderation that i engage in them in to ensure that i'm not actually then taking them to an unhealthy level so there's kind of those two sides to me that coexist one is existing more on the front lines than normal or than than usual um and i guess you know that's kind of why i've got these the black and the white it's about balance it's about yin and yang and it's about having to 
embrace polarity and allow it and not be shameful of it. Mm. Like I find that what is it um, when you're doing shadow work, one of the things that you're doing is you're accepting, you're identifying the parts of yourself that are in your shadow. Mm. You're, becoming, you're bringing awareness to them but then you're accepting them and loving them as part of you rather than trying to change them. And that I think is more powerful than being like, I've got to go through years of therapy because I, there's a part of me that I don't like. It's bringing them forward. It's bringing them loving forward, them. loving them and accepting them as part of yourself. And when you start to do that, they start to lose their grip mm. on how they form your behaviours and thought patterns and things like that. It's the biggest change I find as well when when you accept it and it releases its grip and its emotion in the body, when you allow them to be seen and you allow them to be heard and you allow them to come forward and have space and not judge it. Like we're so quick to hate how we feel or hate how that part of us shows up. And then and then what you're doing is you're feeding further self-distrust, mm. self-misbelief, lack of self-love, those kinds of things because there's a part of you that you don't accept. Mm. And so you're literally fueling that on top of already having that. So it's it's really kind of being able to be aware of the parts of yourself that you maybe don't think are the best, mm. but loving them regardless. I think that's the that's a key component of, of anyone's healing journey. You said something before <clears throat> that made my mind tick and it was engaging behaviours that might not be the best. How do you make sure that it's within moderation? And what are those behaviours? The reason I ask, just so you're aware, mm. is that People at home might be listening going, okay, so does that mean drinking? Does that mean smoking? Does that mean eating sure. chocolate? Does that yep. mean – what do, does that mean being promiscuous? Like what does that sure. – Yesterday I ate two drumsticks. Gosh, <laughs> <laughs> I was not – super chalk drumsticks. I was not expecting that as the behaviour. <laughs> but it's like chocolate is a dopamine hit. Sugar, yeah. is a, sugar is a dopamine hit. I'm controlled by chocolate. Correct. Right now I'm sober from alcohol. I stopped smoking in cigarettes in October 2021 and then I started vaping and I finished. I haven't vaped again for about seven and a half, nearly eight months. The behaviours in those, I have put it in my mind that those behaviours are so toxic to my body that like engaging in, in them is like a cardinal sin, right, for me. It's like... That's the ultimate disrespect to my body mm. if I'm going to do those things. So I've kind of drawn a line in the sand with myself there. I'll be honest, for the last probably like year, since I got off the vapes, my life has been pretty like sweets are always in reach because I'm like I used to be I was sucking on something that tasted like blueberry all day, yeah. you know, and your brain gets used to it. But now that I'm like I was sucking on like pineapple blueberry crush and now I'm like water with salt. <laughs> no, thank you. But now I'm also like I become, I crave salt water. Mm. I love salt water. But I also know there's an association that that's electrolytes. That's um, something that's good for my body. That's replenishing minerals. Mm. And so obviously there's, and I must caveat that with, it has to be good salt and it cannot be iodized table salt. So don't just go tipping salt in your water. <laughs> <laughs> Me like three years ago. Like. Right. Celtic sea salt is the best one if you can get it. Um, and so, you know, I kind of like I will slightly binge on chocolate. Mm. 
but then I'm also sometimes I will have one piece and then that's it. Your self-control must be out of this world in the sense that you have gotten off the substances that you have, mm. alcohol, vapes, cigarettes, and now you're like, yeah, and I, I sometimes I binge on chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm that like, is I'm like, totally Ooh. acceptable. But it's like it really goes to show that like the respect that I have for myself now is so far greater than what I used to. Mm. And I think that's that was one of the where the where those behaviours really stemmed from was mm. just this lack of self respect, mm. just not caring what was the consequences of my body, and now I'm paying for that. So thanks, past Josh. What does that look like? <laughs> what does that look like? Look, I think there's a there's a you know I've got, um, I've got some personal health issues that aren't like super bad, but they they require managing. You know, and they kind of require, and that's why I'm doing all of these things and I'm pretty consistent with them because I know I ruined my gut. My gut, like literally, it should be studied because mm. the, the fact that it's still functioning is incredible with all the things that I put into it. The fact that my lungs are still functioning with some of the things that I put in there is incredible as well. Um, and, my, my, you know, my heart, my brain, all these kinds of things are just, wild but mm. i you know i've got a pretty bad short-term memory um and i, I, when, I, and when I say you. pretty bad i mean like fucking awful <laughs> really really bad but non-existent not almost non-existent <laughs> um you know that's why I like but i know now that i have to constantly write i have to write notes i have to have things that remind me because mm. you know it can cause issues so um i'd say there's a few other sort of health things that i'm, I'm probably not going to go into mm. but they're Concerning enough for me now that I'm actually, um, I'm starting a new program this afternoon, which is kind of a, um, it's a mix between like nutrition, um, nervous system regulation, utilizing different types of breath work, um, Kung Fu, Qigong, and like a few other components to essentially help me get into my best self to kind of reverse some of the damage that I've done over the years. So it's a three months intensive program. So maybe I'll come back in three months and talk about that. It's like a series on you, just like Josh, <laughs> the Josh series. The Josh series. <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, I feel, I feel mm. that there are extra things that I have to do now to keep myself in good stead for the rest of my life so that I can live a long, prosperous healthy, happy life. You mentioned, um, so what is your story? So obviously I was born. Really? Yeah. No right? way. I know. It's crazy. That's amazing. I was born into a, um, my father was in the military. Yeah. So moving around quite often, um, moved around a few different states. Uh, but I remember even as a young child being pretty, like always feeling like I never belonged there was always a sense of either sadness or or anger. Even as young, ha, young I, as what? Look, I, I, I'd say my first memories of this is probably like six or seven, mm. um, which also is, I mean, coincidentally um, around the time that my father left. Mm. So, you know, single mum, three young boys, um, the main breadwinner had left the house. Mm. And then when I was about 11, my mum met my stepdad. Mm. He was a really nice guy, bit of an age difference, but, you know, like 
he was very respectful and I mean, I still had a problem with him because he was like this man coming into my home, you know, and, and I, I can't remember exactly how my brothers felt. But, um, Are you the oldest, youngest? No, I'm the youngest. I'm, oh. the, I'm the baby. Um, and so, you know, it, it took a little bit for me to come to, to terms with that. But mm. they got married and we moved and we lived into a like a little rural town. So it was about, oh, it was like a township of like six or seven houses. I lived there from the age of 11 till 19. So went to school, um, had a re- pretty rough time at school. Pretty much all of my years anyway, I was always pretty much like I really struggled to make friends. Um, I was always angry, like never really wanting to listen to teachers. There was there's lots of um, times where I would just not get my way and I'd just run out of the classroom and storm out and just kind of like always had that behaviour in me. Clearly I'd taken a leaf out of my father's book, you know, when things got difficult or something didn't go my way to just, to just leave. I didn't finish school. I got to... I got to like the first term of year 12, I was working, you know, three jobs, including an apprenticeship at school, which was an IT apprenticeship. And I just, I had like, there had been so many years that I'd failed some pretty critical subjects and I just had lost interest in, in wanting to do any schoolwork. And they pulled me into a room and they said, look, quit all your jobs and catch up on your schoolwork or just leave. And I was like, cool, I'm going. I like, I can read, write and multiply kind of. Um, so... <laughs> Like I'm done. I'm done. Too. Questionable, right? Exactly. <laughs> it comes into question even further later. Um, and so I left school. Um, I got my I got my license. I think it was about just just at seventeen. Just got my license. Um, and then pretty quickly, like after getting my license, I started drinking every weekend. You know, started smoking cigarettes. Then as soon as I turned eighteen, started taking like lots of ecstasy tablets um, and drinking sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday night just writing myself off, moved out of home, um, GFC came, I lost my job and my home in the space mm. of about 10 minutes um, through different circumstances and so I moved back home with my parents and throughout those that period of time, you know, the things that I did, just a stupid teenager just getting super drunk and taking lots of ecstasy and just not really having any sense of self-worth or, or a sense of consequence kind of running around thinking I was invincible, mm. um, which I did feel it for a period of time. You know, there was some situations that I was like, I don't know how I got out of that. <laughs> I really don't. Um, and so, you know, then it came to some, I'd gotten myself into a bit of debt and um, a friend of mine was like, do you want to make some money? I was like, yep, sure. So he, he ended up, um, I took him for a drive, which that was my knowledge took him for a drive and we went up to Adelaide and ended up grabbing some ecstasy tablets to drive them back. And then um, that was all good. And then we did it a second time. And the second time something felt off and I got back home and I was just like sitting there watching TV and I saw uh, some some detectives. Some, there was some, some people walked past my window and I saw a badge on an arm. And my heart was like boom, 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 you know. And then shortly after, there was a knock on my door, and I've opened the door. And I'm not the tallest bloke in the world. I'm about five five, and probably haven't grown much since my teenage years. Um, and they were standing like my stepdad, who was at least six foot. And there was three detectives and a uniformed officer. 
And they were like, we have reason to believe you went out late last night. We've got a warrant here to search your place. And they turned my whole place upside down. They looked, searched my car. Obviously, I didn't have anything because it wasn't, I was just driving. Um, but, you know, that was very upsetting to my parents, obviously. Um, my mum and my stepdad. So they essentially shipped me off to, to Melbourne to live with dad. Moved to Melbourne, um, continued drinking, started working in a restaurant, met a guy who'd been drinking for a probably every day for however many years and we just started drinking and we just drank and drank and drank and drank because I probably followed him around. I was his manager. He ended up coming to work for me there at the um, the restaurant and it was that was when I was 20 and then get to 21, it's later in the year and I woke up one morning and I just had this horrible pain underneath my left rib and it was like burning. And I was like, I told my dad, I said, I think I'm, I think I'm going to go to the hospital. And he wasn't, he wasn't really paying attention. He was on the computer and he kind of thought something else might've been wrong that I was just going for it. But I, I knew I was having a pancreatitis attack. And the only reason I knew is because my father had had many of them. He'd been in and out of hospital for them for decades. And so I got to hospital. And by the time I got to hospital, I remember being in the taxi because I went to go to catch a train and be like, it's 10 minutes away. And I feel like I'm actually starting to die. Mm-hmm. And so I got in the, the taxi and I was like, hospital pronto. And it was like probably 15 minutes away. And he drove me. And I remember being in the hospital and being like, praying to God, like, please, I don't want to die. I'm 21 years old. I got into the hospital. Um, and by the time I got there, I was in the line and I was bent over. I've never been doubled over in pain. It was horrible. I could barely speak. So they kind of they rushed me in. Um, they gave me some some oral, what is it called? Uh, codeine. That's right. <laughs> you, you they, know I more probably than me. know better than you do. <laughs> <laughs> they gave that to me, and that made it worse. I mm. remember screaming while I was in the in the ED. So they were like, they took my bloods, and they were like, "Yep, yeah, you've got pancreatitis." So gave me some morphine, and I, essentially, I was in hospital then for eight days. Um, my lung collapsed from not being able to breathe from basically being so drugged up. It was every two hours morphine into the into the ne- into the needle. And then I got out of hospital. Basically, they determined that I had gallstones or sludge in my my gallbladder. And they were like, we need to take it out. Um, So I went and had my gallbladder out. And then essentially I did my follow-up with the surgeon. And I was like, I remember looking at him, 21 years old. And he's sitting there writing in his things. And I was like, so when can I drink again? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like, hey. (laughs) And he didn't even look at me. And he just went, not for a long time. And I was like, oh, Fuck. that wasn't what I was expecting to hear. Or wanting to hear. Or wanting. So I didn't drink for four and a half years. Mm. And I watched all of my friends disappear. Mm. You know, one by one, all the people that I'd gone out and partied with every weekend or, you know, the people that I'd been like doing Friday night drinks with, eventually they stopped inviting me out, mm. you know. Even though I was like happy to go out sober and I was still the life of the party because I was just, you know, you're great. just high on life, right, yeah. to a degree. I'd survived this thing. Um, but I, like, I was still smoking weed. And I was getting lots of panic attacks. Um, started to, I guess, clean up my life. Started to go to the gym, eat like six meals a day. I put on like 10 kilos of muscle. Started a new job at the bank. Like I just started a finance career considering I'd failed maths in high school. How does oh. that work? Um, and, you know, ended now. up, yeah, ended up you know, sort of working my way up through the bank, got my lending certificate. Um, Look, I'll be honest, I didn't do that well in the bank. In terms of like progression, yes. In terms of sales numbers, 
terrible. <laughs> Almost, there, I think there was probably about maybe two months in the two and a half years that I worked there that I met my targets. Mm. But often that was because the bank's ethos did not fit with my ethics. Mm. Their ethic, their ethos was go look through people's entire account and see what you can sell them. And my ethos was if they don't need it, I'm not going to sell it. And I've taken that through my entire life. <laughs> That's why I liked it when I first got there because they said this is needs-based selling. I was like, mm. oh, yeah, cool. But that was not the case. That was bullshit. <laughs> Good to know. You're right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just know when you call the bank, mm. they are looking at what they can sell you mm. all the time. And I don't care if they hear this. <laughs> I hope they do. I was at the bank at the time and I'd started experiencing panic attacks at night. They just started coming back and I just started getting every night, like just before I was going to sleep, this fear and this anxiety would wash over me. So I went to the doctor and the doctor was a pretty young doctor and he was like, oh, you've got a good career, you're an adult. Here's some <laughs> fucking antidepressants. So he put me on Zoloft for, I was on them for two and a half years. Mm. And I remember like you don't take them for a couple of days and you start getting to the brain zaps. You know, it's Horrible. You're like, what the was that? Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time Jolts. I was like, uh-oh, yeah. uh-oh. And um, after about, so I'd moved into a new job and after about two and a half years, I remember feeling completely numb. I was like, I want to jump off a bridge, literally. I walked into my boss's office at the time and said, here's my three months notice. I think I'm going to go live in um, Ecuador with the shamans and do ayahuasca because this is not working for me. I don't fucking want to do this shit. Society is horrible. Life is fucking hard. I do not want to be here anymore. And that I feel is my only solution. However, I'm like 50 grand in debt because obviously the bank were also like, oh, you're an employee. Here, have an $18,000 credit card. Oh, oh you racked up some debt. Here, let's consolidate it into a personal loan. And I mm. took it. Obviously, I'm not going to say that that was their, their fault. It was my silly financial decisions. Um, but I felt I was taken advantage of with, mm. that, with that. So I got myself into some debt. Ultimately, was like then looking around for the next thing that would help me earn enough money to then get me over to <laughs> South America to, mm. to drink some insane psychedelic and, and hopefully cure my mind. At the same time, I was like, I don't want to do these um, antidepressants anymore. So I threw them out. I didn't wean off. I told myself I did. But they think I think you should wean off over a couple of months. I weaned off over a week. Oh, and yeah. obviously brain zaps, ahoy, for like two months. Um, and I really like for anyone out there who's experienced brain zaps, I'm really sorry. Mm. I know it's hard and, but just, you're going to be okay. Yeah. It really is it fine. Is. They do pass. Mm. Um, don't replace anything with them. Just let them happen. You may make them worse. You know, mm. don't try and go into the Valiums or the Tamazapams or anything else. Just know that you're going to be okay. Talk to your doctor and wean mm. off them if, if that's the case. Obviously not medical advice. <laughs> Disclaimer. Must, must close. <laughs> Not, Not a, a doctor. doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Not a doctor. We've, we, that's uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? At the end. I, I don't watch TV. Oh, well. You know that about me, I think. How do you know that, that then? I just went along with that. But not a doctor that's, is like a, a that's a legit thing. It's like one I'm, of those that's one of those things that they have at the end. Hey, you know, it's like uh, this was brought to you by Paramount Studios or whatever. And it's like not a doctor. Oh, uh, yeah. well, I love that that happened for you because yeah, it was for literally me, the, it was the just perfect funny. pitch and the perfect tone. It was just like, <laughs> I was like clearly, you know this. Because I think I'm, I'm just not. funny. <laughs> well, there you go. That's even better. It's an original because if you haven't <laughs> seen it, you can claim that it's an original. Yeah, right? yeah, I'll go with it. So I met this guy. Um, I actually 
you know, I, I left that workplace mm. not in a great way. Um, but I met this guy who was basically told me he could change my life financially. And I was like, something was sus about this dude. Something was really sus about him, but mm. I didn't, didn't, I didn't listen. listen to my intuition, which mm. oh, I've done a couple of times in my life and I've definitely, definitely paid for it. Mm. I had this one deal that like it was a second mortgage and, you know, the, the person was in a lot of distress and, you know, there was lots of situations going on with it. The broker was like breathing down my neck, but because the client was breathing down his neck and I was just like, this is not where I want to be. This is not my vibe. I'd already started to realize that obviously, despite the fact that I, you know, used a lot of drugs and drank a lot of alcohol, didn't think I was a bad person. Then in the end of 2017, my father got pancreatitis, pancreatic cancer and died within six months. And it was mm. brutally quick. And it was brutal to watch him just disintegrate. You know, they put him on some, he joined a trial and basically his whole thought process was, I don't have to have chemo, they've said. And because it was a little radioactive chip that they would put inside the tumour and then it would like attack it from the inside out. But then they were like, no, we need to do chemo as well. And you can't do anything else. No alternative therapies because it will fuck with the trial. So... Because my father was not a particularly healthy man, I'm fairly certain it was the chemo that killed him. Not because chemo is evil, which is debatable, but it's also, I think, because he was not healthy and he mm. could not, he couldn't eat because the, the because the actual um, tumour was blocking his digestive tract. So any food that he ate would just come straight back up. So he wasn't getting any nutrients. He wasn't able to look after himself. So he became skin and bone. Um and that was very, very traumatic for, I mean, for me and my family, for everyone who's experienced a, the loss of a parent, you know, I deeply feel for them. I understand it. it is horrible and it changes you. It really does. About a couple of months later, I remember being, it was Australia Day weekend and my car was parked on um, Herbert Street near the Botanical Gardens in St Kilda and I knew it was parked in a no standing zone and I did not give a fuck. I couldn't, I couldn't get myself out of bed. I was in bed for four days. Mm. Literally, like getting up to eat small amounts of food and drink some water or coke or whatever else it was, I was drinking at the time, um, and then just back to bed and lots of tears and I just couldn't. I was so low, so I went to a psychiatrist, and you know I'd been talking to my doctor and I'd kind of been saying, "Hey, I'm a bit like up and down," and she was like, hmm, "Do you think you might have bipolar?" And I was like, hmm, "Don't know, probably." She was like, "Cool, so we'll we'll get you into front of this." So I went through to the Alfred Psychiatric and sat in front of three psychiatrists and told them all my story and they went into detail and stuff and they diagnosed me with bipolar type 2, which is not um, – it's more about the highs and lows, so lots of depression um, and hypomania. I think – I'm not 100% certain on this, but otherwise known as like manic depressive. But the mania is more hypomania, so it's less hallucinations and things like that, but more just like I'm so on top of the world, you can never stop me like really creative and just like bursting with energy. But then if I stayed there for too long, I would, you know, become, I guess, like I said before, really sort of easily agitated, mm. um, irritable, quite angry, quite aggressive, quite quickly. Um, and then I essentially was put on medication, so mood stabilizers, lithium, and which uh, it's lithium carbonate, I think. Otherwise, you know, lithium is known for batteries. Um, and so I was on that from two th early 2018 
to the beginning of 2020. And every couple of months when we'd catch up, they'd be like, how are you? And I'm like, not really much different. Still up, still down, still fucking hate my life, still depressed, still angry. They're like, cool. So start taking another tablet. Mm. And then it got to the point where I was taking one of the highest doses that you can take. It was 1.25 grams a day. And come 2019, I was still working for this investment startup. Um, I was now the general manager. I'd done a lot of work for them. And I, my, my housemate at the time went on a holiday. Then when it was a couple of months, they were away. And I found myself wanting to experiment with some things. So I, I fell into a pretty serious addiction mm. with a drug um, that is really, really heavily addictive and incredibly difficult to get off. And mm. it typically has claimed a lot of people. Um, and I remember like when they came back, it was like I would, I'd been sober for a day or so and they'd come over and they were working at the kitchen table and I, um, I started feeling pancreatitis pains and I hadn't felt them for you know nearly, nearly eight years. And so I called the nurse on call. I told my housemates at the time, I was like, I just had a couple of drinks the other night. Um, and so then I actually, she was like, take some Panadol and see how you feel. Otherwise come into hospital if it doesn't make it any better. And I was like, okay. I took two Panadol and within like 30 minutes, it was like I'd taken 10 Valium. I passed out, I fell asleep. And somehow my friends knew that Panadol had some interaction with this, this drug. And I got like, I got up and I was like, guys, I'm going to bed. It's the middle of the day, you know, mm. and like I went to bed. And then when I got up, they kind of confronted me about it. They're like, are you on anything? And I was like, uh, yep. And I was pretty clean. I was, mm. came pretty clean about it. Got off it for a couple of weeks, you know, was like, yep, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to sort all this out. Very quickly fell back straight into it. And instead of one delivery system that I knew was, um, much more noticeable and would get me a lot higher. I discovered another delivery system that I could do that was a little bit less like, it was kind of just do a little bit here and there, you know? Mm -hmm. And so just to feel that sense, because I remember the, the body pains that I would experience when I would not be on it were awful. Like that was when I realized when I was first addicted was when my body was in so much pain and what I had been sold was a dud and it didn't fix my problem. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. I'm literally addicted to this stuff now. And I remember being fearful of my life. And that was kind of like that that poignant moment, even though it took another three or four months before I got off it. Um, Wait, can we pause there? Of course. <clears throat> so you were fearful and you wanted to get off it or you had that inkling, but it still took four months to get off it. Is that correct? I like I knew that something had to change because otherwise I was just gonna get further into that addiction. Mm. But it took months to take the actual action. There was the desire to do it, mm, okay. but not the actual doing it. Mm. Um, and it got to the point where I ended up in psychosis, mm. um, which I would say was quite mild comparatively to what some people experience. Was, Without going into like the detail of yeah. that, but for people listening who don't know that story of the psychosis, sure. so something happened to you where you thought, or you thought you had heard something that you didn't hear, right? Yeah, I was lying awake at like three in the morning, and I could hear my housemates two rooms over from me having a very clear conversation about how they were going to call the police on me. Mm. I heard the phone ring and everything, and it didn't happen. That didn't it actually did, that happen. did not happen. 
It's amazing. Right? So I, I visually, I audibly heard it, this conversation. As though you and I are speaking right As now. As though you were speaking right now. And like I, to the point that I went to them the next day and said, hey, can I ask you if you guys were talking about me last night at 3 a.m.? And did you guys call the cops on me? Like, mm. no? Mm. Okay, so you're on drugs again. Yes. <laughs> Fuck. I need help. I need help. So I started, I had a, I had a social worker at the time. Mm. I, um, she took me to my first NA meeting. Did your family know that you were on drugs? Mm, yeah, I'd look, I, after a while I did tell them. Yeah. Look, my parents, my family have known that, you know, I've, I've, I've abused different things throughout the years and, and obviously it wasn't met with the best reaction, but, you know, there was always, always my family's always been incredibly supportive, mm. incredibly. Um, so, and obviously living, my parents and my brothers living in a different state makes it very difficult. Mm. So I went to, started going to NA, you know, it was a really great group. This was like late 2019. And then... Look, I I started looking around the room. It was a really beautiful group of men. I was like in there. It was like everyone was so vulnerable all the time. And I was like, this is powerful stuff. But then I started realizing I'm like, most of these guys are here because they've gotten out of rehab. They've gotten out of jail. They've been court ordered to be here or they've lost everything. Mm. And they're like, this is, I'm like, I'm nowhere near that. I've still got my job, even though I'd been suspended because I looked like a junkie. That was, that was the words he used. That was the moment that I was like, okay, something needs to change. I also just think that, um, you know, people can be having a job and a career and, you know, living in a house with housemates. Like oftentimes we look at drug addiction or we look at addiction with homelessness or we look at it outside of like just a a human experience that could be anyone that we're surrounded by. Absolutely. And this is where I think it, you know, having good people around you is really important because I would not have been able to get out of this if it wasn't for the people around me. Mm. You know who you are. I love you. Mm. And the the love and support that I was given, the patience to be like, you're doing this in my house, you know, once more and you're out kind of thing is the, is the vibe. And so I also, when I was in NA, I realised, I was like, I don't think I need to be here. I don't want to do these 12 steps. I didn't believe in a higher power. I'd been baptized when I was brought up in a Christian household, but I'd refuted that. I'd said, I don't believe in God. I don't mm-hmm. believe in a higher power. I believe in, I don't know what I fucking believe in, but there's something not there. There's nothing there. And I am totally okay with that. Do you still believe that? We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, so I, I stopped going to NA, mm. but I also started going back to the gym, you know, and things like that. And then 2020 hit at the same time that I was like, I had relapsed. I'd bought some utensils and I, at the same time that I was like, no, I'm not going to carry down this path. I've had a, I've had one night on it and now I'm going to throw it in the bin. At the same time, I also looked at my lithium and I went, and you can go in the bin too. I'm done with you. I've had enough. I'd started seeing a psychotherapist, but he could clearly tell that I was using. And so he never really went into anything. It was just me fucking rambling like a madman the whole time. So I paid a guy $300 a session to have mad drug rambles too. And then oh. people wonder why I think therapy is useless. Oh. <laughs> that was my last experience with therapy. And then COVID came. Mm. And then when I like got clean, I was like, hey, I want to resume therapy. I'm sober. He was like, sorry, I'm not doing sessions. And I was like, wow, okay. But also 
You got clean without going to NA. I'd like, I went to NA, but I didn't do the steps. So one day you decided like, I want to be happy. The need for being happy outweighed the need to get high, which was. I can, I can tell you exactly how it happened. This is what I've been waiting for. All right. Tell me. Actually, I told, told this story last night. It was middle of 2020-ish and, you know, I'd, I'd gotten off my pharmaceuticals. I'd gotten off that drug that I was on and it had been a few months. I was rapid cycling on and off of hypermania and depression. Why? Was that because, because of- I'd gotten off my medication. Cool. My mood stabilizers. Yeah. Um, and someone was sending me. Yeah all this information that was damaging to my mental health, mm. I would say at the time. And I was still working in my job. Um, I had a, I was a manager of an investment company and I had an argument with my manager or my boss. It was like, th- I think it was a Thursday night. And so I knocked off at about one o'clock because I was like, fuck you. Mm. And I drank half a bottle of wild turkey mm. and I messaged a friend and I went and stayed with said friend. And I came back five days later mm. after five days of complete debauchery and significant relapse. And when I came back, it was the day that they were locking down all of the North Melbourne flats, the Housing Commission flats, and I was watching it on the news and my friend was sending me these things and I was a fucking mess I was bawling my eyes out. I couldn't stop. I like literally ran into my housemate's room and was like, can I please have a hug? And I just fell to pieces. And then he was like, are you using again? And I was like, yeah. And it, it was like he also kind of gave me the kick up the bum that I needed that was like, you can't keep doing this. He was, Mind you, he was also one of my other bosses at the time. <laughs> Two bosses, I lived with one of them. Amazing. That so supportive. I was very lucky to mm. have that dynamic because, you know, not only was there like I need to be happy, but there was also like I'm letting people down here. I have got things to lose, you know. So that was a poignant moment for me because even though I had quit, you know, for I'd sort of been off it for a few months, I relapsed and was I was so unhappy and it was almost like I'd forgotten what it was like to be that low. Someone might be addicted right now who's yes. listening to this and they go, oh, well, Josh didn't go to NA so I don't need to go to NA. Look. It's such a risk though. The camaraderie that I had in NA, the people that I had that I met that could be like their support, that I could call and be like, hey, man, I'm feeling it, you know, I rarely used it, but knowing it was there was big. Mm. But for me, it was also living with someone who knew my situation, Mm. being honest and vulnerable with these people Mm. and kind of putting some boundaries in place. Like he would ask me when I'd go out late at night and I'd come back, he would stay awake and he would ask me questions. He'd be like, did you behave? Mm. And sometimes when I didn't, I'd be like, yep. But then I'd stay in my room for three days. Mm. It's kind of like, well, you didn't behave, did you? You know? <laughs> but I didn't do it in his house, mm. right? So then there was a there was a, some kind of like, you're only doing this to yourself now. Mm. And I think, you know, for me, and this has always been something that initially has been a very unhealthy thing, was I was doing it for other people, mm. right? It was like, I'd still do it 
I'd go out of the house to do it because it's like, but then I'm not disrespecting this person, mm. right? But completely ignoring the fact that I was disrespecting myself. Mm. The, it, I, look, those next sort of six months coming into middle of 2020 was sheer willpower. Uh, this. Was, it was, and I'll explain what I mean by that. It was knowing what state I had been in and really like putting that to go, here's where I was when I was addicted. Here's what I almost lost and here is what I want to build for myself. And really when I would feel like doing it, looking at this chart and mm-hmm. going, do I want to be in this temporary moment of bliss, feeling this thing to then potentially lose what mm-hmm. I've built and what and lose the opportunity to have what I want for my life. Mm-hmm. So when I say willpower, it wasn't just like, oh, I stopped it and I didn't do it. It was like I had reasons as to why I didn't want to do it anymore. What what would the situation have been if you were triggered though? Like if there was something, I mean, you had really good support around you mm-hmm. and you had people that you could call if you felt it. Like I think yeah. that, that that is such a huge tool, having your people around you that if you're feeling like you want to use it, you have the steps to not go yeah. down that decision and that pathway. But for people who feel triggered and might not have that, the people around them, because I just think addiction is so like it's... it's Look, it's a complex thing and there's yeah. so many different ways and unfortunately I don't really have the capacity mm. to speak to that. Mm. What I can tell people who may be listening to this who is struggling with addiction and who are feeling like they don't have some support, mm. you need to build some. Mm. You need to find some. You need to reach out to someone. There is lots of support out there. Mm. There's like, in especially where I live, there's like seven weekly meetings just in a, like one building near me, mm. right? It's a heavily mm. affected area, right? Mm. So there's definitely people you can reach out to. The problem is, is we often don't want to ask for help, mm. right? What you need to do is you need to make yourself believe that you deserve that help, mm. but you need to find your why because once you've found your why, you will do anything you must to actually get out of this situation. And this is where it comes down to finding my why. Mm. And my why was do I want to, over the course of these last couple of years, I had started to wake up to the negative behaviours, the toxic, you know, thought patterns that were that were feeding me my behaviours and who I was and wanting to do something more impactful mm. for my life. I stopped wanting to disappoint my family I wanted to actually build something for myself. I wanted to get out of debt. I'd stopped wanting to be miserable Mm. and I wanted to be truly happy. Mm. And I think for me, the, the, the need to be in that state of being far outweighed the need to get high. Mm. So come mid 2020, I've been off the drugs for a few months. I've been off my lithium for a few months and that was a wild ride. (laughs) Obviously you can imagine it's kind of destabilised me a little bit. Mm. And at the time someone was sending me lots of information about COVID and all this kind of stuff that I didn't really like. It was very 
traumatic and I'm like, dude, I'm struggling to deal with like my repressed emotions from the last 15 to 20 years here, <laughs> as well as uh, like we've just been thrust into a global pandemic, plus I'm detoxing, plus I'm getting off these pharmaceuticals, oh. plus now I'm also grieving my father. Oh. Do not need to know this shit right now. Mm. And he said to me, you know who you are and I appreciate everything you've said to me, is just take some time out of your day and meditate. And he sent me a couple of meditation, like guided meditations, and I was like, oh. I tried to meditate once before in my life and my brain was going, blah, 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 and I was like, "This is like, how am I supposed to clear my mind? A very horrible misconception of what, of what meditation was about. Mm. And so I listened to this guided meditation. I did it two nights in a row and I remember falling in love with it. Mm. Then I was like, oh. I need to find more of these. Then I started doing like meditation without guided, you know, without mm. the words. I started doing them with like different binaural beats, which, you know, different frequencies for different purposes. And I would like, I loved meditating before bed. I loved meditating in the morning. I loved like, it was coming to be around like August, October, September area, like starting to get a little bit warmer. Um, 2020 was like a really nice warm year towards the end. And I was like walking out the park with my feet in the grass and I was like grounding. And then I was like getting lots of sun. And then I started cleaning up my diet. My diet for the last 10 years had mainly consisted of like two liters of Coca-Cola a day, um, burgers, chips. I'm fairly certain that I'm listed as a VIP on Uber Eats or was at one point. I remember having a pyramid of bags that I was like, my God. We have had far too much of this. So started cleaning up my diet, eating more vegetables, more fruit, more whole foods and things like that. Um, and then started doing like Wim Hof, you know, the breath work. And I started doing that. Like my favorite thing to do um, at the time I had replaced my addiction by smoking some weed. Um, and so I was like, I'd, my favorite thing to do was smoke a joint and then go out to the park and do some breath work in the sun with my shirt off, with my feet in the grass. And it was just like I could feel energy like flowing through me. And it was like just this beautiful, powerful experience. But again, very quickly I was like, I'm just replacing a physical sensation. I'm just here. And ultimately what I had to do and what I did over the next course of a couple of years through meditation, breath work, um, grounding, things like mindful eating, um, and also, I guess through it, what I would call an organic discovery of self, I discovered that there was a self-hatred within me, in my subconscious, that was feeding my behaviours. Mm. And so it's not enough to be like, I'm off the drugs, I'm off the bad stuff. You need to actually discover the root cause of what is feeding those behaviors? And for me, I did a I did a um, a rapid transformation therapy uh, mm. session recently, well, like a year ago. And she spoke to my subconscious, and I remember being present, but my subconscious was in control. And she asked me, like, what, like, what, what, why do you do these tendencies? Like, why do you choose short term behaviors over something that's going to give you longevity and, and good health. And it was a subconscious was like, because I'm trying to kill him. And it was at that moment that I realized that there was a deep self-loathing. For some reason, I hated myself. I hated every part of my being. And that made sense to the anger, 
to the external world because when you hate yourself, how can you love anything else? Um, I'd felt abandoned. And so therefore I was like, why do I feel worthy of anything, worthy of anything good? So there was this like worthless, self-hating, self-loathing human being that ultimately was just turning to these quick fixes that would spike my dopamine or that would, you know, raise some hormone that would make me feel good. And it wasn't till I actually took care of that that I actually learnt how to avoid these tendencies, these addictive tendencies, these self-destructive behaviours. And for me, it was very organic because it's kind of like when you're when you're doing trigger work, right? You're never going to not get triggered or you might, but you're often going to get triggered at something. It's just the severity of the trigger decreases. And it's about when the trigger happens, not reacting to it immediately. And the more you do that, the more you look at this and go, why am I triggered? What's like, what, what's being threatened here that's making me feel triggered? And then how can I respond to this in a, in a way that doesn't actually continue that cycle? And the more you find the more that you do that, the more you actually discover about yourself the more you realize and you start looking at these situations that may have triggered you previously and you go, oh, shit, I'm actually not triggered by that this time. Mm. And then different things would come to, to mind and you go, you get these realizations. And so that was like the organic self-discovery process over the next year and a half through my experiences. So for me, like I would say that doing these steps, the healing work that I was doing, wasn't necessarily the be all and end all of what I needed to do. But what it did is it put my body, it put my mind in a healthy enough state to then be more open and aware of who I am and be willing to allow these experiences to happen. How did your tribe change when you transformed your life? Do you still it's, have people from, sorry to interrupt, do you still have no. people from? 2020. I mean, like, not really that I regulate regularly mm. hang out with. I guess, like, I've I've gone through when I first stopped drinking when I was 21 after my pancreatitis, all of my tribe dropped. No, mm. <laughs> like people stopped inviting me out. Mm. The people I fucking lived with at the time stopped, like, wanting me to come hang out in their room and smoke cones because I also stopped smoking cones because mm. it was making me anxious. No one wants to be around the guy that has a cone and gets anxiety. Yeah, you know, that's it's a it's a downer. Mm. It's ruining their high. Mm. So like I just started having to find things to do by myself because we hung out all the time. And so, you know, it's like I've noticed massive shifts in my life through my friend circle. My friend circle now, when I look at it, is completely brand new to what it was two years ago. Mm. Completely brand new. I still keep in touch with people that I've, you know, had relationships and friendships with before, but there's not the, there's not the same connection mm. um, and you know, people, people look, people live their life, things happen, people get busy. I think it's important that um, I'm trying to stay in touch with certain people. Some people have just kind of fallen by the wayside. But now I look at my circle and I go, man, I've never felt so supported by people. Mm. And that's how I, you know, I genuinely feel like I've, I'm in the right place because they feed me as much as I feed them. They give me as much as I give them. And I couldn't be more grateful for the people I have in my life right now. Mm. That includes you. And, you know, it's like these were the kinds of people that I was looking for for such a long time. People that actually 
fed my soul rather than taking from it. Oh, it's making me emotional. <laughs> it's it's true because, you know, I've often felt my circle throughout my years was not true to to who I was. You know, I've had people that have been with me, like the last guy that I lived with, like five and a half years, literally was with me through thick and thin. The, we, you know, through my, my addiction, through COVID, through financial hardships, through varying partners, like through building a business together, through buying a business together, to exiting a business and leaving him like just like we've been we've been through so much and he's someone that I would consider like a very very close person to me that I would regardless of what happened in our lives I would always want him to to be connected to me in some regard mm-hmm. and ultimately these are the kinds of people that you need you need oak trees in your life not a weed Sorry, that was the best fucking. <laughs> but he like to I me. I saw that journey. To me, there's an oak, he's an oak tree. Yeah, he's steadfast. He is something that is going to stand the test of time. And and when you when you meet people and you get to know them, ask yourself: Is this person an oak tree or a weed? TM, copyright, twenty twenty three, breathwork era. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us in part one. Next week in part two, we get to deep dive into what breathwork actually is and what to expect on a breathwork journey. We get to see how we can use the breath to transform ourselves and our lives. We also learn a little bit more about other therapies and skill sets that Josh has practiced and developed to really transform himself. I'm so looking forward to releasing that episode with you and see you next week.